hell by any other name. We're going to look at the history and meaning. Now, let's pray. I don't usually pray before I preach, so this is a good sign. (sighs) Father, you know in great detail how it is that we got to the place that we are with this word and with this concept. And you know exactly what you mean, Jesus, and meant when you were talking uh, to your disciples, when you were talking to those in the Sermon on the Mount, when you were talking to the Pharisees. And, and uh, boy, some of the things that you said were, were harsh and tough. You know, and you have watched and walked through every moment of the centuries of the history of your body. And you know what has got us to this place today. So I ask that you would just help illuminate that some to us so that we can really share in the plans that you have for us and for our future. And so, Lord, I bless you and uh, ask your help in in, uh, understanding the flow of the history and and the concepts tonight. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard's back, so I have a nice review set. We didn't have to review why you weren't here, Richard. We just blew. no, that's not true. We reviewed. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, I can't can't pull the wool over. So here's review number one, but this is considerably quicker. The God, our God, who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love created, right? The same God, our God, who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love, both sent and came to do redemption. Spirit, fire, light, love, and love is currently in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, reigning in the heavens until, and there's all kinds of stuff you know, that talks about that. And spirit, fire, light, love, and love was poured out on all flesh in the person of the Spirit. So the point of this part of the review, and the point that I want to keep in the front of our minds, and honestly, I believe this, the point that a lot of believers miss when trying to think about the the truths, uh, the scriptural truths about judgment or about afterlife or about the disposition of the unredeemed and all these sorts of things is we forget who the one is who orders the ages to come. So in all our analysis and all our scriptural exegesis and all our looking and all our wishing for justice and, and all our uh, hoping that Everybody else gets it except us. Let's keep in mind who orders and who controls the future that we're facing and that we're learning about in Scripture. And it's the one whose spirit, fire, light, love, and love. Okay. Now, review number two is that these are the only words that are translated as hell in any Bible that I know about. Now, there could be some Bibles that other things aren't, but these are the words. uh, And and out of these five, only four of them are translated hell in the Old Testament, but uh, all of them touch base somewhere in the New, uh, one way or another. So, Sheol. uh, Remember when you looked that up, there's 66 results. 31 of them are translated as grave. 31 of them is hell. In the King James, these are all in King James, uh, and three of them as the pit, and one of them as a phrase in the depth. It's almost never translated hell from the late 1800s forward. And we'll see that in just a second. Uh, the vast, uh, beyond the, the King James and the New King James, there's only two other translations. 
that uh, out of the 18 that I that I looked at that have uh, the word hell at all in the Old Testament at all. Okay, so uh, one of the points of that is there's there's not a lot to learn about hell from the Old Testament. But so that you understand what I'm trying to say, I think there is an enormous amount of stuff to learn about the afterlife in the Old Testament. It just doesn't come packaged in the word and the concept of hell in the Old Testament. And so if we're looking for that, we're going to overlook a lot of glorious things about the expectations and the interaction and the the, um, preparations that God has made for the afterlife. Okay, so anyway, Hinnom is, uh, there's 13 results in the Old Testament. Uh, Last week we looked at some length in that. It is never translated hell in the Old Testament that I know of. But it is spoken of by Jesus uh, in 11 different instances, or 10 or 11 instances in the New Testament, and translated hell in a number of translations. Not all. If it's not translated hell, it's almost always uh, transliterated into Gehenna, which is a Greek verb that more, I mean, a Greek word that more closely lines up with the Aramaic version of Hinnom, Gehenna. But uh, so then that gets us into these blue ones down here, the New Testament, Gehenna. There's 12 results, 11 hells in the Synoptic Gospels, all of which come out of the mouth of Jesus. And um, uh, and that's in, in King James. But there's also a number of other translations that do stick to hell for Hinnom. And we looked at that a little bit last week. Hades, there's 10 additional results uh, that are translated hell in the King James. Um, that's... Not very common. The majority of uh, uh, the majority of translations don't translate Hades. Uh, that way, they transliterate it as Hades, and that's why in a minute you're going to see there's 23 instances in the New Testament in the King James of hell, but there's only usually 13, 14, or something like that in the others. And then Tartaro is one that is uh, in Second Peter two four, and it's translated hell in King James, but uh, it's probably closer in meaning mythologically and even theologically to like the abyss or the pit or something along those lines. And then review three is, is this is the breakdown of these 18 different Bibles that I looked at. Uh, the King James, you can see, has 31 Old Testament uses of the word hell and 23 New Testament because it translates both uh, Hinnom and Hades. New King James has 13 in the New Testament, because it doesn't translate um, Hades as hell, it transliterates Hades. And then there's 19. I'm not really totally sure why there's a lot less in the New King James. I haven't gone back compare. But the New American Standard, ESV, uh, Revised Standard, the Holman Christian Standard, the NIV, uh, Young's Literal, Complete Jewish Bible, Bible in Basic English, the World English Bible, and then uh, the easy-to-read Bible, the Amplified, they don't have uh, any Old Testament references to hell. They transliterate the word Sheol for the most part. And then um, there are those four, the Young's Literal, the Complete Jewish, the Bible in Basic English, and the World English Version, that have zero references to hell if you do a concordance search in them. You won't find hell in those in either the New or the Old Testament. Now, the point of reviewing this is... It's not sacrosanct. It's not heretical. It's not uh, being super edgy 
to challenge hell as the best translation in certain passages, uh, like the ones about where Jesus talks about the fires of Hinnom or the Valley of Hinnom or something like that. Because a whole bunch of segments of the church, a whole bunch of scholars, a whole bunch of translators don't use the word hell to translate Hinnom and don't use the word hell to translate Sheol. So for us to ask that question, it's not us going out on a limb being really weird. And the confusion comes when there's the assumption that if you don't, if you don't think, like I don't, and I'll be honest about it, I don't think hell is the most useful word to understand what those things mean. Therefore, other words, even just basic transliteration, still leave open the question, well, what did Jesus mean when he said to get thrown in the valley of Hinnom? Or what did he mean to get thrown in the fires of Hinnom? Well, if if you use the word hell, you've almost got to accept the sort of accumulated meaning of that with all the pictures of the demons and the fire and the poking and the torture and all this kind of stuff, and plus all that that means about who God is. And so... That's the reason. But the reason that I keep reviewing this screen is we're not transgressing something that just goes... <gasps> you know, we're just examining like all those other translations examined it and decided it'd be better to transliterate Shul. It'd be better to transliterate Hinnom. And then so like, for instance, um, N.T. Wright, who I respect, and I think you guys do some from what we've looked at his stuff, he... Uh, I think for the most part, I haven't checked every single one. Uh, he he just transliterates Hinnom. And for the most part, he transliterates Hades in the New Testament. So my guess is there wouldn't be a whole lot of reference to hell by name, the word hell in there. So, make sense? Okay, I just want to give you permission that we're not like going to have lightning strike us for doing this yet. All right, review four is that when Jesus said to have spoken the word hell, he exclusively, he personally exclusively used the word representing the Hebrew Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, or the word transliterated into Greek as Gehenna through a couple of means. In either case, the word refers to the Valley of Hinnom as a physical place uh, of official record southwest adjacent to Jerusalem. Not that that's the exclusive meaning of it, but when Jesus was standing there and talking about it, there was really a place in real time at that time to the south and west of Jerusalem. If he was on the temple, it was out that way and out that way, look, way he was looking. If he was in the Valley of Kidron, it was around the corner of the bottom of Jerusalem. It's a real place. It's a real place. And it's a real place that had, I think you used the word last year or last week, heritage, a history. It has a reputation. And that reputation was built around some kind of crummy stuff. Uh, it has a history of idolatry. It has a history of sacrificial childbearing that was a duplication of, an embrace of, the false worship and the idolatrous worship for the nations that were around Jerusalem at the time, after uh, the Jebusites were one of those nations and they weren't driven out. And eventually, at the time of the kings, their practices started being adopted, pagan practices. And it wasn't just that. I mean, it infiltrated Israel to the point that they had instruments for the worship of Baal literally in Solomon's temple, in the temple. They had des, uh, desecrated, and then they had rededicated, and they'd done all kinds of things. So uh, child-burning, false worship, and and the rest of the story that is in the history of Israel in the Scriptures is found in, in uh, Chronicles and Kings, and then a, a big chunk of it in Jeremiah as a prophet. And that was partly about the repentance and the reforms against the judgment, the uncleanness, the desecration, and the exile. 
And then one thing that I, that I just love is that Jeremiah's prophecies came with promise. With promise that I'm going to, yes, uh, I'm going I'm to not, I, this is going to happen. It's, it, there's no way it's not going to happen. The judgment, the exile, all this stuff. But people are going to, I'm going to go gather them back. They're going to be brought back. They're going to be restored. So there's a promise even then in the direst of circumstances when the nation had forfeited its right to possess a temple and forfeited its right to possess the promised land. There was still a promise of redemption. And that's important to remember. It's important to remember. That's the God who created, who redeems, who fills, and who reigns. So tonight we're going to look at, at the, a brief, and it is going to be brief, history, I think. Uh, etymology. Etymology means the uh, evolution of word, the history of word, and the various meanings and usage for the English word hell. Plus, we're going to take a quick example and look at our own word choices, and then hopefully we'll have some discussion if anybody wants it. And that applies to Zoomers or people here. Hi, everybody on Zoom. All right. So, uh, I realized intentionally uh, when I thought about it, I've been talking for two weeks about hell and I haven't defined it. And that's partly to illustrate something and partly because this seems a better time to do it. The thing it illustrates is that we all know what hell is, right? That's the assumption. We all know what it is. And so when you say hell in our, in our country to anybody, they have an image in their mind. They know what it is. Even though we're going to find out here that the dictionary has to go through a couple of pages just to define the usage of it. So let's look at it. So from Christianity, and this is where both of these dictionaries start with, with the Christian, it's the netherworld in which the dead continue to exist, and it sometimes parallels Hades. Okay, Often hell is the place of eternal punishment for the wicked after death, often imagined as being presided over by Satan and his devils. Now, here's a definition of it that may or may not be the one that you have grown up thinking about or that your friends in other churches or the Bible school or whatever think. Uh, there's quite a divergence on the role of the devil and demons in hell. I know people that don't believe that the devil and demons are involved in hell. I know people that believe kind of the what would you call it? The cultural picture where they're down there torturing people and stringing them up and poking them with, with uh, pitchforks and stuff like that. Okay? But that's part of the image of hell that circulates in our culture. And then the, uh, this is one that's really, really interesting. And this spans all kinds of people's beliefs, uh, Christian people's beliefs about the nature of hell. It's an existence or a state of separation from God or something characterized by exclusion from God's presence. Now, that's pretty common among people who think about hell. What is hell? It's being separated from God. They also say that's the same thing about death, is it's separation, and eventually that the eternal death is separation from God, and they merge hell and, and the second death in that kind of uh, interpretation. Okay, I understand the logic of it, but again, does hell provide the best image for understanding what the Bible actually teaches about the lake of fire and about the second death and all that. And I would say no, and that's what we're trying to get to. But um, that particular definition, as common and as diverse as it is, does present some problems. Because how are, how are you separated from an omnipresent God? So you're talking a relational separation, perhaps not a physical separation. Although I talk to people who believe it's a physical separation all the time. The other thing is 
uh, and of course King James would be the only thing that would make you guilty of this, back in Psalms 139, uh, where shall I go from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I ascend, thou art there. If I'm in the, in the depths of the sea, your hand is there to guide me. In other words, that is a direct contradiction to the idea of separation and Hades is what that word, or Sheol is what that word is, or hell. So all I'm saying is this is why I want us to look at this, why I was willing to take the first three weeks of this year to look at it, because hell comes with such a complete package that we don't think about what it says and what it means about us, about God, about people, and that kind of stuff, I think. Anyway, there's a bit, I think there's more that we can think. But uh, I beat that horse long enough. Uh, in general... It's uh, in a lot of different places, religious traditions. It's the abode of the dead in any of the various religious traditions, such as the Hebrew Sheol or the Greek Hades. It's the underworld. It's where people go when they die. And a lot of those, uh, uh, Sheol and Hades both, have overtones that are pretty clear that uh, everybody goes there, the good and the bad. It doesn't necessarily become a place of punishment immediately or even consequently. Okay, here's another one. Hell is used as a situation or a place of evil, misery, discord, or destruction. This is a quote from William Tecumseh Sherman. War is hell. Now you can see how that parallels. But again, hell has a really pretty solid thing that it says. That kind of carries over to this next usage. It's an extremely difficult experience, tormentor anguish. He went through hell adjusting to the job. Now there's a big difference between eternal conscious torment and having a hard time adjusting to your new job, but hell fits the bill for both of those, both of those scenarios. Okay. Here's a, a number. It, it has a, a, an ability to represent the spirits of hell. So if you've got a culture in which there's a concept that hell's there and the spirits are there in some kind of servile or ruling way or something along those lights, you can say, man, all hell came against him to try to stop him. And what you're inferring when you say that in our culture, and in most cultures uh, around the world, you're saying that the demons rose up against him or there was all kinds of opposition from the underworld or from the dark side of things or from the kingdom of darkness or something along those lines. Then there's an informal that's just a reference to one that causes trouble or agony or annoyance. So the boss is hell when the job's poorly done. So that gets personified. And these are just definitions. That's all I'm trying to show you. So again, hell gets used... It gets a lot of mileage as a word. A sharp scolding. The teacher gave the student hell for, for cheating. He didn't, they didn't give him a valley outside Jerusalem. <laughs> they didn't give him a fiery pit. They gave him whatever that is, you know. But we all know what it means, right? To give somebody hell. Yeah. Uh, a unique physical application. I don't know if anybody knew this. Uh, a tailor's receptacle for discarded material is called a hell. You can see how that happens, but I mean, that's cool. And Richard, in the printing where you were, did you have a hell box where Miss Prince went? Is that what it was called? Oh, <laughs> okay. It's, uh, yeah, you modernized it. So anyway, I've, I've, I've never known about a hell box in the printing industry. That, that was part of the Miriam Weston definition. But I can understand it. In other words, something screwed up or whatever up and then you throw it in the, yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. So here's uh, the way hell is used uh, according to dictionaries in informal conversation. 
And I love this because it's both positive and negative. So as an outstanding or noteworthy example, you are one hell of a good cook. Now, everybody would know that. And oddly enough, with all of the overtones about hell, you would receive that as a compliment, right? You're a hell of a good drummer, Jason. All right. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So what I'm saying is there is some semantic range in this word, right? There is some usage differences. So we can talk about that and not uh, cross the line. Uh, it's used in, as an intensive or an intensifier, uh, as, as a language element, how the hell should I know? You don't need to say that. You could just go, how do I know? But it does that. And then you can use it as an intensive in, in idioms, such as he beat the hell out of Jimmy. We know what that means. We don't have to ask. It wasn't just a beat down. It was horrible. It was a big beat down. It was, it was, it was gross. And then lastly, I didn't know this, but one archaic usage in Western culture is that gambling houses used to be called hell houses. And my guess is that came from some people that had some sort of religious convictions <laughs> and had access to a King James Bible, probably, be my guess. All right, so that's the, the definitions. We're zooming through this, so we're going to have time to talk. Now I want to look at the word history of the word hell. The word hell. So, see, we actually are studying about hell tonight for the first time in the series. All right. So when the Anglo-Saxons became Christians in the early medieval times, the Old English word hell, which um, means concealed or covered over or enclosed, and there's a bunch of interesting word variants on it that do that, but it means concealed mostly. The Old English word hell was used to translate the Latin word infernus from the Vulgate. And Jerome translated, uh, so that means the lower region of hell, and he translated uh, Hades in the Greek as Infernus. And so hell designated the fiery place of eternal punishment for the damned. Now, when talking about this, this fiery place of uh, eternal punishment wasn't original to Jews or Christians as an idea. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even held uh, very strongly at all by the Jews. And there was, there was a lot of temporariness to that in the different rabbinic schools in uh, Second Temple Judaism. But there were some people that thought about it. It came originally, as best as I could understand, it came originally from Egypt. And then they had a whole series of gods that were down there. uh, And it was always down and it was always under the earth and all that kind of stuff. And that was fiery punishment in hell. So that made its way up through the Vulgate trans, uh, laid at Hades as Infernus. And interestingly enough, he didn't, uh, Jerome didn't do anything except transliterate Gehenna into whatever Gehenna would sound like in Latin. And I don't know how it's got that A-E diphthong at the end of it. So he translated, Jerome translated Hades as Inferno, and he transliterated Gehenna as I don't know how to make Gehenna sound Latin, but that's what it would be, with just that little diphthong. All right, so, but what did hell designate before the conversions of the Anglo-Saxons? And we're talking Anglo-Saxons, we're talking the uh, the English, we're talking uh, that creeping over into the Germanic people, and so on and so forth, and that's where the rest of the words came. All right, so we can discover some indication of the original meaning, the pagan meaning of hell, by examining its Old Norse equivalent, hell. It's the same word. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, okay, yeah, what is the Vulgate? What is the Vulgate? Yeah, the Vulgate is the Latin translation uh, from the Greek manuscripts by Jerome for the Catholic Church, and it became for several hundred years the standard of the Catholic Church. And if any of you had a history in the Catholic Church back when you were, when I was a kid, maybe not when you were a kid, but back when I was a kid, there were still Latin masses, and the Vulgate was the, the basic translation that they read. And it was a Vulgate that had a tremendous amount of influence. It was also because uh, Augustine was not a Greek scholar, uh, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. He did a lot of work as a, out of the Vulgate, and a lot of the translation choices, yeah, hi, Ronnie, uh, a lot of the translation choices, hang on a second, a lot of the translation choices that Jerome made in the Vulgate were things that uh, Augustine built a lot of his doctrine on in the City of God and stuff like that, and was basically the father of the Western church theology. Uh, Western church meaning that there was a split in the church over some one of the councils, and the Eastern church went one way, and the Western church went that way. And that covered a lot of the Catholic stuff. But then Augustine's writings uh, called City of God continue to have a lot of influence, uh, even through the Reformation the reformers. One of the big things about Augustine was that he was very, very dualistic, and he saw uh, the necessity of eternal conscious torment if there was going to be such a thing as eternal life. And he was very strong about that. And, and when we start actually studying afterlife, instead of just studying the word of hell, uh, you know, we're going to look at some of Augustine's stuff probably, because he was super influential. But anyway, it's interesting to me that, so another path of this whole idea of the meaning that we all just assume hell has came through the Vulgate and it came through the influence of the Catholic Church to, into Italy and into Dante Allegheny's Divine Comedy, which is about Inferno and Purgatorio. And much, much, much of the sort of common image of hell that you see in, in movies or that you, in popular literature, you can find in the, the uh, purgatorial side of, uh, of um, Dante's, Dante's poem is called The Divine Comedy. I think that's ironic because <laughs> it's anything but funny, comic. Well, and, uh, all right. Does that make sense now? Okay, so that's the path. That's how the word got there. And then it's interesting to me because obviously when when the Anglo-Saxon uh, conversion of England and, and Britain and uh, Ireland and all those things happened, that became a very, very, very influential part of the church. And then there was a rift between them and Rome, and uh, that, that led to even more stuff in the 1500s and 1600s. But way back with this idea of hell, which then was translated into hell in Anglo-Saxon and hella in German and hella in Dutch and a few other things. So we can discover the indication of the original pagan meaning. And I'm not inferring that the current meaning is pagan just because its origins were pagan, but I want you to see the parallels. It's really fascinating. So the medieval Scandinavians and Icelanders, these were the Vikings and that kind of stuff, uh, were converted from paganism much later than the Anglo-Saxons, and they preserved a good deal of pagan poetry, revealing the ancient Scandinavian vision of the afterworld, and here's some of it. So there's a medieval Icelandic scholar called Snorri Sturluson. He lived from 1178 to 1241. He was a Christian, and he also paints a very vivid picture of hell for us in his accounts of the Norse myth. 
And this writer that I pull this from says, although his description may have been influenced by his own Christian conception of hell. So I'm not trying to suggest that hell was just borrowed wholesale directly from uh, Scandinavian mythology, Viking mythology. But what I'm saying is that this is how it adapted and why the word was so readily acceptable to represent what Augustine had established as a necessary place if there was going to be an eternal counterbalance to eternal life for the unrepentant. So the old, old North hell is the abode of some of the dead. And the characteristics of those dead were they were oath breakers, they were other evil evil purpose, persons, liars, cheaters, so on and so forth, and those unlucky enough to have died of old age or sickness. In other words, unless you died in battle, you went to hell. Now, the interesting thing about it is uh, if you did die in glory in battle, you went to Valhalla. So one of the parallels with the common understanding of hell that I think is really worth taking a look at and, and kind of paying attention to a little bit is that hell is juxtapositioned against a version of heaven in Scandinavian mythology. And it almost is always juxtapositioned against a version of heaven. So, so the people that do what you have to do to get to heaven go there, and the ones who don't go to hell. In this culture, the warriors who died in battle with their swords went to Valhalla, and it was cool there, and they hung out with the gods and so on, and the others went to hell. Now, hell wasn't a place, per se, of torment, but the, the Scandinavian mythology paints it as dreary, paints it as uh, just all kinds of stuff like that. So, But the parallel, I think, is interesting. That's what caught my eye. Now, unlike the typical concept of hell, the Old Norse hell is very cold. That makes sense to me, since it was all built around living up in the you know, in the, that area. Uh, it contrasts sharply with Valhalla, the hall of Asgard, where the heroes slain in battle crowds with God. And then the word hell capitalized is an Old Norse personal name meaning hidden. And that hidden concept translates into the German aspects of hidden and concealed and all this kind of stuff. And so then hell gets pictured as being under the earth and out of sight and all that kind of stuff. But the word hell as a name, is given to a giantess and or a goddess who rules over the identically named place, the underworld where many of the dead dwell, those ones that didn't die in battle. Okay, now interestingly enough, so you have a goddess over hell, and she is the daughter of the god Loki, the myth god Loki. Now most of us know or heard about Loki because we've seen one of the Thor movies or the Avenger movies or something. Does anybody remember Loki's sort of title? He's a god of mischief. Yeah, yeah. And his mischief wasn't just playing a prank on you. It was pretty severe when you get into the mythology that goes there. Uh, you can't really trust Marvel mythology around Asgard and Thor uh, because, like, they brought hell. Uh, if you remember that gal in one of the Marvel movies that caught... Um, Thor's hammer and crushed it. It was supposed to be their sister, his and Loki's sister named Hela. Oh, no, that's not. That was an adaptation of the culture to the movie. But pictures of Hela do look like that. And so I've got a couple here. But anyhow, this is interesting. So I, I think it is. It could be boring as heck, but I'm the one talking, so it's cool. Uh, anyway, she's the daughter of the god Loki, and she's the sister of the, the this wolf. So Loki also had a wolf. Uh, named Fenrir. 
And if you go back into the details about Fenrir, Fenrir was the destroyer. And Fenrir didn't get sent to hell under hell, but he uh, was a threat. He was beginning to be perceived as a threat to Odin and the other gods, Thor and those in Asgard. And so they finally uh, tricked him and bound him in chains and stuck him someplace. And I don't remember the place they stuck him. And then when he got out, he was, he was uh, angry, of course. But he was the destroyer. And then a world-enwrapping servant, serpent named Jormungand, or something like that. I'm not, I don't know if I pronounced it right. Now, I think the fact that this serpent ended up... So the serpent was born to Loki and uh, uh, Anger Brood or Anger Brown or something like that. Anyway, she was a giant. Uh, after uh, Hell was born, and after I think the wolf was born, but this serpent eventually grew so big that it wrapped all the way around the earth and constricted on it. Now, do you see any any parallels at all? I mean, I I do. I think it's fascinating. So, one of the one of the interesting uh, comments in one of the commenters on this uh, mythical poems is that this makes her a part of a highly dangerous and disreputable family. There's her, there's her brother, the destroyer, Farron the wolf, and Jormungand, uh, the world-encircling serpent. So, here's a painting called Loki's Brood by Emil Diepler. And you can see there, that's the mother. And I think, I, I think I'm supposed to have a U instead of an E in anger, Boda. I think it's supposed to be anger you are. But anyway, she was a giantess, and uh, uh, anger boda means something like uh, uh, anxiety uh, projected or something along those lines, like foreboding, yeah. But anyway, so there's hell, and then her uh, brother and sister, sort of, is the wolf and that big serpent. Now here's another picture that is her older, and it kind of shows the serpent smaller and the wolf, but these are images of hell. This is done in 1889. Now, there's, uh, you don't want to look too close, but uh, it looks like that she's got shadow on the left side of her, but that depicts one of the other things that is a part of the myth of her is that half of her body is beautiful and the other half is corrupt. And the degrees of those corruption that I saw in various illustrations were Everything from uh, uh, most everybody, most of the poetry talks about her being blue, but it's got like vein lines in it. And some of it, uh, I've seen I've seen her characterized uh, as just skeletal on the left side. Uh, but in any event, that's the concept of hell and hella. And it's tied to the wolf, the destroyer, and the serpent that ensnares and circles the whole world. So, I'm not saying that hell is a, well, maybe I am saying that. I was going to say, I'm not saying that hell is a direct pickup of a pagan afterlife concept. But that pagan afterlife concept certainly did inform the meaning of the word as it worked its way into the English language and the meaning of the word and how appropriate it it felt to the church leaders and stuff to talk about the afterlife and the two sides of the afterlife. Um, 
Okay, we'll have some time to talk about that in a minute. So here are uh, a few closing thoughts and an example. Words have meaning, and meanings matter. That's all I'm trying to say. And we know it because if we try to talk about hell, we are at the mercy of everybody's preconceived idea about it already. Now that may be okay. And there's a lot of things that are like that. Like when we talk about Jesus, or when we talk about the cross, or when we talk about baptism, everybody's got their own meaning. Some of them, you guys have seen the video of that Orthodox baptism of that baby where the priest has got the baby and he's going, (laughs) not everybody has that image, but boy, have you ever seen that one? You have it. The Jewish idea of baptisms is a mikvah, a washing. It can be everything from very formal to very informal. Uh, Me, as a good Southern Baptist, it was always dunking in a tank. Some people, uh, you know, their whole idea. So anyway, words have meaning. And communication requires on the meaning, not of what I'm saying, but what you're hearing, what you're seeing. And what I'm suggesting is that hell deserves another look because it carries such a robust and such a protected and such a serious package of word pictures and meanings and concepts. And some of those came from, came from Scandinavian. Some of them came from medieval, uh, theological thought. Some of them went all the way back to the fact that Jerome chose to translate Hades as the word infierno. And infierno became one of the primary subcategories of the Italian poem by Dante. So, so I, 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 what I wanted to do is I wanted to give us an example to try to help you understand what I mean to think about it without being threatened by you know, thinking maybe we're doing something wrong or whatever. Uh, so here's a verse. It's Luke 23, 42 uh, and 43. You guys know the story, right? It's the thief on the cross. So the, key, the thief had just said, uh, told his buddy, you know, hey, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. You know, we deserve to be here. And he ends up saying, beautiful thing. Uh, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And then Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I put the Greek up there because the word is paradisos. So you can understand that the word paradise isn't being translated. It's being transliterated, right? It's like when the new, newer uh, versions of the Bible transliterate shoal instead of half the time calling it grave and half the time calling it hell. They just translate it Sheol. Or the way Hades is transliterated as Hades. Then remember in Revelation, and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. King James says death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. So that kind of makes it confusing as what the lake of fire is if it's related to hell. But a lot of times those things happen, uh, meaning that transliteration is a very legitimate way because now the meaning of that is open. Now, as we seek to, to understand Paradisios, um, we understand it's a, it's a, it's a pleasant place, a good place, a place of the afterlife. It's not, Jesus didn't say, Hey, uh, I, I tell you the truth. I'm going to meet you after today over on the corner of Abraham and Jacob Street. You know, he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about something else. 
and that something else we call paradise. And paradise has all kinds of meanings associated back to the Garden of Eden, has all kinds of meanings associated with the bosom of Abraham, has all kinds of meanings, frankly, associated with Hades. Because if you're not thinking of Hades as a place of punishment, paradise is one half of Hades, depending on what school of rabbinic thought you're thinking about or whatever. Okay, get the point? So now here's the other point, though. This is the point I really want to make. How would you feel about translating Luke 23, 43, the part that Jesus says like this? And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in nirvana. I mean, nirvana is an afterlife concept, right? Kind of. It's, it's that all the, that all connections are gone, that everything's done. It's the no more reincarnation. It's the, that's the role of nirvana. It's like nothingness. More like nothingness. Yeah. So that would be the ancient Sanskrit version for multi-religions because nirvana is a concept in Islam, in Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, all this kind of stuff. Anyway. I wouldn't like that translation myself. Or, he being Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in Shangri-La. Shangri-La is a lot closer to the concept of paradise. It's a real place in the, in the uh, religion of, of Buddhism. You see what I'm saying? We could also say, if you preferred, uh, today you will be with me in uh, Brigadoon. But each of those carry their own meaning, right? But they're not that far from the meaning of a word that didn't get translated. It got transliterated in the New Testament, almost exclusively, even in the King James, Paradiso. Yeah. Transliteration. Okay. Translation is you read a word and you assign a a meaning to it from another word in another language. So uh, transliteration is you just speak that word in that language, but you have to let the meaning come from its origins or some other method. I'm trying to think of a quick example. No, transliteration is just simpler. It's just sort of acknowledging this language doesn't necessarily have a word to say this thing. So for instance, uh, the translation of... A uh, woman into Spanish would be uh, senorita. There are two different words. So there's a standalone meaning to the word senorita, and there's a standalone meaning to the word woman. That's translation. Um, what, what would be a transliterated word in Spanish? Anybody? Huh? Yeah, rodeo. Okay, because rodeo has a meaning in English that was developed in the West, and it was picked up because of contact with that culture. And so it's the same word, just said with a different accent. You know, that, does that make sense? Okay, so what, what transliteration does is it honors the word in the language that you're trying to write from and translate from, but it doesn't impose a meaning on it. Now, it's not always wrong to impose a meaning because if you have a good meaning in the language that you're translating into, you should use it. You know, 
we face that with uh, with love a little bit in, in those words because we have storge and we have agape and we have eros. Those are all Greek words, for instance, of love that are translated as the same words. So translation can bring clarity, but it can also bring confusion. It can also bring something that's just not plain right, you know, which is part of the point that we're at right now. Greg? Um, I'm curious. I didn't bring my smartphone in here, so someone may have access to this. Uh, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, and the NT3857 is paradisios. Is that a compound Greek word meaning with God? Oh, I don't know. Might be. That'd be interesting to see. Have to look it up. <laughs> yes, Dan. Translate doesn't necessarily, or to transliterate doesn't necessarily mean that we get the original meaning. And no. I'll give you the example of Sheol. If you ask the average person what Sheol Absolutely. is, they'll Absolutely. say it's the grave. And yeah. it's like, well, you've missed all the nuance. So I would argue it is better to translate because we don't have, you know. If, if you have the meaning, for sure. If you don't sure. have the matching word, don't try to jam it in. Right. Maybe carry it, but that doesn't mean people will take the responsibility to find out what that transliterated word actually means. Yeah, there's a strength to both. Obviously, if you have the word and the word is, is you know, you're, you're standing there as an authority or as an educator or as a, a linguist or something, and you're saying, okay, this is what this word means, and, you, and that's a good way to go. Uh, if you don't have a meaning to that word, and there's a lot of reasons why you might not. Technology, uh, that's why if you're listening to somebody speak in, in French or even Chinese, you can recognize certain words that have come up in the last few decades yeah. because they didn't, they weren't formed back in the 11, 1200s when Mandarin was being formed. Yeah. That, so that's the point. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's just every word is a, every word we have in our language is a symbol or a shorthand to grasp a concept. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we just don't have good symbols to grasp. Absolutely. Concept. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, it's a shorthand to put Sheol in there, but it's like somebody needs to define it somewhere. Right. You know, so. But if, we, if we'll if we dig in, for instance, a word like Sheol... It's better. It, well, it, it has a meaning, but it's in the Hebrew culture. Right. So you actually then have to you know put on your big you boy pants and study the Hebrew culture a little bit and see what it is. And if you don't do that, you're going to be subject to other people's scholarship and other people's translations and stuff like that. And what I'm suggesting isn't that hard to pick up. Okay, how about this one? What if we were to translate it in a contemporary way that all of us can relate to today and are excited about? And he said to him, with assurance, today you will be with me in a carbon neutral, fully equitable, economic utopia. <laughs> oh, this comes from the... Uh, World Economic Forum version. <laughs> you'll owe nothing and you'll like it. Do you see my point? There's, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on hell. I'm just saying that hell has a meaning that may or may not accurately or best convey what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, you should pluck your eye out because it's better to go into life maimed than go into the fires of Hinnom. And we have to take some account of what 
the culture that he was in and he was speaking in and the language he was speaking in, especially, now it's not like the, the, the 12 scriptures about Hinnom and the surrounding prophecies in Jeremiah, they were just incidental. They, they had a meaning and, and the meaning of that stuff that that was all about was enough to get them exiled to Babylon. And so there's no Jew back then and probably none now. I don't know. I've got a question into Yana, but there's, there's no way that something of Josiah's story, Hezekiah's story, the exile to Babylon, the return from exile, there's no way that that wouldn't have been informing some of what these people were hearing. Because, you know, like that bottom verse would have zero meaning back then. (laughs) What are those words mean? But you all laughed because you know what it means. And you know the the meaning that that would convey and how, how ridiculous it is. It still has no meaning. You're right. So anyway, that's it. It's taken me three parts on a quote study about hell to get to the point where I defined what hell means to most of us. And I'm suggesting that it's probably worth us not being lazy about the meaning of that word as we try to understand what is God doing with the people who believe in Jesus? What is he doing with the people who don't believe in Jesus yet? What is he doing about people who repent? What is he doing about the unrepentant? What are his plans, remember? Because he's the one that orders redemption. He's the one that facilitates it. He's the one that facilitates the future. The ages were made through Christ, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And they're rolling at us from the intellect and the emotions and the heart of God, who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. And if those things were just completely characteristics that had nothing to do with what we think the future is about, but the Bible teaches us, because here's another word that has multiple meanings, depending on the cultures you assign to it, this is judgment, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. So it's not okay to go into Blackburn's law books for us as believers to try to understand the word justice as our final authority. Could they, could the, the ideas of, of jurisprudence in America have some ability to inform us on what justice is? Yeah. But when I hear people arguing about God is just as if he sits on the Supreme Court, I'm going, that isn't what Jesus came down here to reveal. There's elements of that, hopefully, if we have good Supreme Court justices. And justice is linked with the king as a blessing and Proverbs and all this kind of stuff. You see what I'm saying? And hell, to me, and this is just me, but hell is one of the most dramatic, insistent, threatening, intimidating, meaning packages of any word in our language even though we use it to say, you're a hell of a good drummer. <laughs> you know, we're, we don't know what we're unleashing. And then, not to make too big a deal out of this, but I found it somewhat fascinating 
that the Scandinavian mythology from which that word made its way into English and then into German and things involved the son of a mischief-making, or the daughter of a mischief-making god and a destroyer and a snake that grew so big it wrapped itself all the way around the world with no good intent. Now, I'm not saying we got our stuff from that. I'm saying that sounds a lot like something that came up around a strategy table in the kingdom of darkness to try to deceive people about who God was and who his child was and what the outcome of things were. And I just don't want to play into it. I want to think through it. And I'm not retranslating it the way the World Economic Forum version says. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm done. I'm open to any other questions. Any other thoughts? That's a great question, Greg. You know, I will have to look that up or I won't be able to go to bed tonight. Yeah, Jeremy. And I asked Amy, I said, okay, so he's, he's looking at the actual vocabulary word. When's he going to get to the eternal separation and the concept behind that? I was separating those two things in my mind. And so the vocabulary part of it is, okay, that has to be dealt with, you know, but there's a bigger topic over here that needs to be dealt with. And I'm thinking that I was incorrect in my, my thought process, because if we take a look at, you know, probably tons of scripture that have to do with the words coming out of our mouths and, and the life and death that comes from them and things of that nature, um, then, then uh, we consider um, that does... If, if we're appropriate to, and I think we've, we've arrived at a place, at least we're giving ourselves freedom, to, to put this word and what it has meant on the line for dissecting, does that, does that dismantle the other argument just by simply approaching it from a, uh, a word and what do we assign meaning to? Does that take care of? the other piece that I had separated in my mind. Does that make sense? And, and I don't know, uh, you guys have heard me say this many times on other topics, and you heard me say it at the beginning of this topic. I want us to have permission to question those things without being afraid or intimidated or silenced because some of the things that you categorized as element number two do need to be looked at fresh again because they have enormous implications on our faith, on our trust of God, on fear, on on everything, and our motivation and all that. So I think, obviously, or I wouldn't have devoted this much time to it, I think talking about the vocabulary and the meaning and, and exposing it for the secret package of meaning that it, that it carries, if you don't push it and check... I think it's worth doing, and it opens the door for that. And that was what I meant earlier, Jeremy, when I said that I know what we really want to look at is what are the realities of the afterlife and the interaction with God over that and judgment and all those important matters. I just felt for a long time, uh, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to explore it now, that this prepackaged 
bit of vocabulary that is so incredibly powerful. It is so powerful that it can just nullify any other conversation or exploration that it gets in. And so I'm hoping that what you're saying is true, that once once the power of that vocabulary assumption is broken in some way, I'm done, broken in some way, then those other things will be a, a joy to explore. But I appreciate your analysis of it. I think it's spot on. Yes, sir. Vicky, to the question, Vicky was kind enough to look up Paradisos, and one of the things was heaven, and it just struck me. There was a play on words, even while Jesus was suffering, and he was, it seems to me, and I'll study it further, but it seems like Jesus was telling that people on the cross, this day you'll be with me in the with God place. Huh. So That's pretty cool. See, that's just one little thing, and I know I just used that to make up a goofy illustration, but I believe that there are some spectacular truths in the Scripture about the afterlife, about judgment, about God's intention, about the destinies of people and stuff that we miss because it all gets lumped into this dualistic, you know, hell versus Asgard. I mean, hell versus heaven. Hell versus whatever the alternative is. And I just think we're in a position now, if, if God will help, to see some things that we may not have seen. 